0: What got me most excited about church when I was a teenager was the drums. Some things never change. And when I was in uh, high school, the church that we attended at the time had uh, a bunch of students who were uh, in high school who were musicians, and so we had a worship band that that played primarily in our our high school service. But we got good enough to where they actually – they. Like, we're willing to let us go down to big church and lead worship for the entire church. This is a pretty large church. A couple thousand people would attend on a Sunday. And this is a big deal. I was really excited to go and play because the, the drum set in big church had, like, a ton of toms, a ton of cymbals. So think, like, your quintessential 80s rock drummer, Neil Parrott from Rush, or, or pick your guy who had way too many drums and what you could ever need for a drum set. And yet they had all of them, and he played. That's what we had in church. So I could not wait to go. And play those, and just play in front of our whole church. So the morning that Sunday came, we're a little nervous, a little excited. We start, we start worshiping, and it's, and it's, it's going well. We're, we were decently talented musicians. It wasn't awful. So we start playing. But one thing we all noticed when we, we played that Sunday morning. So it's an auditorium, ton of people in there. But in, in the middle of all of these people, one guy stands out more than anything else, anyone else. One, uh, for a couple reasons. One is because he was 6'5", he was really tall, and he was wearing an all-white suit. It's like, like he highlighted himself when he came in. Because most people dress casually. He's got an all-white suit. That's one reason he stood out. The other reason he stood out is because he had his arms folded and was just giving us the nastiest look. The entire time. It wasn't like a minute or two. I mean, we played three songs. He did not change. That's how we looked the entire time. Time. And that was, that was just, that was a, that's pretty, pretty stunning to, to see. Like, you're, you're leading worship, and out there in the middle of this, the sanctuary, the worship center, is a guy in an all-white suit. He sort of looks like Colonel Sanders, only if he offered you fried chicken, you would not want to eat whatever he was giving you. And just, what did, what did that guy know that made him feel like that is the appropriate response in worship? And again, to be clear, like, we were not awful musicians. We're like, he was scowling because it's like, this is the worst music. We were pretty decent. What did he know that made him feel like that? That is the appropriate response in worship. Contrast that to Paul in the first verse of the text we read, who says, Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I actually love what, the way the New Living Translation translates this. They say, or translated there, whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. So Paul's saying a couple things. One is, whatever happens, rejoice in the Lord. Even if you have to endure a high school worship team, you should be able to rejoice in the Lord. And I think Paul has even more difficult circumstances in mind when he says that. The other thing is, is he says, I never get tired of telling you these things. And I think this is the fifth time now Paul has told them in Philippians, just two chapters, rejoice in the Lord. And basically he's naming, I know I'm saying this a lot, you need to rejoice in the Lord. And I don't tire of telling you these things because this safeguards your faith, this keeps you safe. By having a spirit of rejoicing, your faith is is kept safe. So what does Paul know that Colonel Sanders didn't? And what does Paul want us to see about why rejoicing, or how we rejoice in the Lord, in all circumstances? What does Paul know that we need to know? Well, that's what we're going we're gonna to unpack, is that question. What does Paul know here that's, that makes it possible to actually be a person of rejoicing in whatever happens? And to start answering that question, we have to, we have to lean into a word Paul uses that's at the center of this passage, it probably doesn't excite any of us. It's a very religious word. It's probably confusing. We may not quite know what it means, or maybe we have some, some myths in our own interpretations of it. But ultimately, what Paul knows, or what Paul talks about knowing, is all around this word righteousness. So Paul says in verse 9 that he's found in Christ. He doesn't have a righteousness of his own that comes from the law. But that, a righteousness, which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So whatever Paul knows that enables him to say whatever happens, rejoice, it's about righteousness. So what is righteousness? My guess is if you hear that phrase, the first thought is well, righteousness is being good. Righteousness means I'm a good person, I do good things. And that is, that is true, but Paul, I think, actually gives us a really helpful framework in this passage to give a more robust definition of what righteousness is, and he does this because Paul lists out a number of qualities about himself, uh, from verses four through eight. And these these it's okay if you hear these and like I don't it feels like he's bragging about these things, and I don't like I wouldn't brag about these things. That's okay because you didn't live two thousand years ago. But Paul goes through this list about what it means that he is righteous. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Pharisee, he's giving a list of qualifications that to him made him something really important, which doesn't mean anything to you, but in that day, if you were a Jewish person, Paul's basically saying, I was, I was cream of the crop. To be circumcised in the eighth day means I was, I was a Jew by birth. I believed in God from the beginning of my life. To be of the tribe of Benjamin meant that, that Paul was a part of only two tribes that didn't abandon the house of David in Judah, but stayed faithful to the house of David, which God made promises to in the book of Samuel. Paul's saying, when it comes to my record, my, basically he's laying out his resume, when it comes to my resume, no one can equal me. When it, whoever should have confidence in the flesh, in other words, about their own resume, it's me. It'd be much like today if, if we were to say, of our own resume, I've got, I've got two degrees from Harvard. Both my kids have academic or athletic scholarships to college. I'm the president of my company, and I'd like to invite you to take a ride in my Ferrari to explain to you more about all that I've accomplished in my life. Paul is laying out a rock-solid case that he has the best resume you can imagine. And that's what righteousness is, ultimately. Righteousness is, is a resume. It is a list of qualifications that make you what you should be. Now think that out for a minute. What is a resume? A resume is, a, is an argument or a case that, that you should get into something that you're currently on the outside of. So when you apply for a job, you, you create a resume. And basically, it's your argument for why people who want to pay someone money to do something should pay you money to do that Thing. And my guess is when you list your resume, it's, it's, it's true, maybe a little embellished, right? Because you're, you're not just saying, well, this is who I am. It's so this is who I am that should let me in to what you are currently, what I'm currently on the outside of. And we live in a, in a resume world. We, this is how we operate with one another. We live in a resume world. So I just mentioned that's how the, the job world works. You cannot get a job if you don't have a resume makes a compelling case for why you should get in to the thing that you want to get into that you're currently on the outside of. And maybe you think, well, hold on, wait a minute. Now I, know, I know some people that have gotten in without the resume. Well, that leads me to the next thing. We, live in a, we, let, we do resumes with friendships, right? We look at people and we say, do you, do you have the kind of qualities that I think you should have to let you on the inside? That's why some people get jobs just because of who they know, because the friendship piece. But even I was thinking about this, my first uh, night of college, it's was four years of high school, moving to a new city, new place. Um, I, I went to a Bible college, studying to be a pastor. And the first nights that we were all together in the dorms, we all played capture the flag, which is like the quintessential thing that Midwestern Christians would do, is we would play, as our first thing, we would play capture the flag. And if you don't know what that game is, you probably did not grow up as a Midwestern Christian, and that is okay. Uh, but as we were, were playing this game, like, the, the, the thought that is just going on in my mind, and I know is going on in the people who become my friends eventually, is, man, if I see something really dumb, like, will, they ne- will I never be friends? Like, I'll be set back months. With- this is the first impression. If our team wins the fl- if I find the flag, and I'm the reason we're victorious, I'll suddenly be top of the heap, right? Like, we're all sizing each other up. What's this person's sense of humor like? What are they? Where are they from? What are they? We're all and we're all creating a case for please be friends with me for the next four years. We do this with friendships. We do this with romance, right? We look at, at people. If if you're if you're married, you've already done this. Um, hopefully, you you've, you're done at this point. If you're married, if you're not married, you're looking around. Is this person? Are they attractive? Do they have income earning? Uh, um, potential. Would I want to see more people in the world that's like that person? Because if we have children, that person's going to be duplicated. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Right? We're size, and you're doing the same to other. Like, Brit, it's, it's, that's, it's, it's a it's, it's resume. Build a case and argument for why I should spend my life for you. We do that with ourselves. How many of us have, have stepped away from an opportunity because we're convinced, I, I do not measure up. I'm not, I don't have what it takes for, with those people or for, for that thing. And we actually, we shut, we shut doors on ourselves because we think, I, I don't measure up. I don't have the case. I don't have the argument. They shouldn't let me in. So we don't even try. And ultimately, where we get to, or will we, where we will get to this morning is, is God. What kind of resume, what kind of case argument do we think we have to make for God to, to let us in? opened the doors of his throne to us. So here's what, what's happening in this letter. Is Paul says, I have the best resume. If anyone has reason to put confidence in the flesh, it's me. I, am, I was righteous. And then he, he, But this is what he says about this, like having a really great resume. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything, I count all of this as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So Paul says, um, I look at the resume I built that would get me into anywhere I wanted to go, and I now see it as As rubbish. Now, that is a very gentle translation of this word. Um, there is actually, if you read commentaries, there's debate about whether or not Paul has moved into a word that actually would be considered a curse word in that day. Um, so if you're like, how is Tim about to translate this word? Just, we're okay. I'm not going to cross any lines here. You're not going to have to fire me this afternoon. Um, maybe you might for other reasons, but not for this. The word is ex- it's excrement. It is the it is, word for excrement. And it's a strong word for excrement. And what Paul is saying is, I have the best resume, and now in light of knowing Christ, it is is all crap. You can put the best case in front of God, it's all crap when I compare it to knowing Christ. So what does Paul know that enables him to rejoice, to be a person of joy in all circumstances? I think first, he, he actually is recognizing that we need righteousness. Paul knows we need righteousness. The answer to what Paul is saying in this resume-building world is not to say, stop building a resume. Doesn't, no, he says you need a righteousness. You just need a different kind of righteousness. You don't need the righteousness where you're building the case for yourself, for other people, or for God. That, we can't get away from that. But you need a different righteousness. So Paul knows we need righteousness, but that's not enough. He's, we need something else. And we'll get into that, and Paul's already named it. You probably know what it is. But before we, we push into what Paul says we need to know instead, I just want to I want to pause and ask you, what is on your resume? What do, what do you feel like when it comes to building the case for yourself, towards God, towards yourself, towards your friends, towards others? What is on your resume? That if you start to fail at that, you're losing your case, you're losing the argument, people shouldn't let you in, you're failing. Here's the deal, P- pastors, we're all pathetically... Uh, uh, predictable when it comes to what our resume, what's on our resume. You ask any pastor how their church is doing, they're going to talk about how many people attend on a Sunday morning. For some reason, every pastor thinks that matters, um, and that's one. That's one thing. Another is just the the health, the vibrancy of of a church. A couple weeks ago, I was I was debriefing with a friend um, who's in ministry himself, and he. You know, we are just going through, like, the last year, COVID. There's just all kinds of, of mental health issues. There's just all kinds of, of just problems we're all experiencing because the pandemic brought a lot of stuff out. And he just, he asked me this question, because I was just saying the burden I have. And when something happens that's like, you know, that someone's, uh, you know, having a really hard time. It's like, I, I internalize that. Is that's, that's, my resume's failing, right? I don't have the case to make anymore because something's failing in my, in our church. And my friend just asked me, he's like, how many problems do you think are happening in your church right now? It's like we have maybe two, three hundred people a part of our, our congregation. i have probably a million problems right now. Would be my guess, right? And if you like, so the resume is not very strong right now. In other words, or like the the attendance piece. I mean, that's one of the things. COVID like attendance has just completely changed, and it's interesting. Uh, I don't hear pastors talking about attendance the same way that they did a year and a half ago because so the resume is not there. So that's, listen, that's our, that's, I just worked out my own pastor issues in, in front of you. But that we all have those things that if, if, we start, if they start to not go well, it's not just that it's not going well. And that's okay that it's not going well. It's, oh, my, my argument, my case, my righteousness is being threatened. And so I'm, I'm worried and anxious to a degree that I shouldn't be. So what, what is that for you? Is it your kids? Right, your kids yell back a little bit at you in a moment, and it's like, my, I, my, my kids are going to end up in prison. That's, that's where we're headed. That's, that's the trajectory, right? It's, it's not just that there's a, a normal child development moment, but it's your, your resume is getting threatened. It's your career, your wealth. That every success or failure, isn't just success or failure, which is okay, and it's okay to feel sad over those things, but actually your resume is getting threatened. Your relationships, your friendships, your grades, is your athletic performance. What is it that's more than just a good or a bad thing and actually is moving into resume? Because ultimately, like, this, the trying to, to gain a life of righteousness through our own effort doesn't work. And it doesn't work for two reasons. Basically, if you're trying to build your own case for yourself, whether it's before God that he should let you in, whether it's for your own vocation, and that's what's at, at the center of your life— one of two things is going to happen to you if you live that way. One is you're going to actually have the resume, and you're going to be a person of pride. Right? That's the only way you can get to be a person that's 6'5", would wear a white suit, and just scowl at teenagers worshiping, is you're convinced you've created the resume for yourself, and these little punk kids have not. And I will not join in worship with them until they are like me. And just think, like, if someone were to come up to you and say, oh, this woman, she's a, she's a very religious person. Would you think like person who rejoices in all circumstances, and you want to be around them, or would you think Dana Carvey, Saturday Night Live, church lady, sitting behind her his desk, comparing Santa to Satan, judging everyone, and just this endless negativity of condescension of "I am better than you"? That's one way, right? And Paul, even to some extent, that's that's what led what where he was led is actually becoming a persecutor of the church because he was convinced these people theologically are a threat and wrong. We must stamp them down. If you try to live a life of resume building for yourself, you're going to be a person of pride, or you're going to be a person of anxiety and guilt, because you know you, when you don't have the case to present, you know it. And so you're going to think, there's no way, they can't let me in anymore. God's not going to let me in. I, sh- I shouldn't even let myself in. And Paul says, there, actually, there's I know something else. I know a different righteousness. And he names it as a a righteousness from God that depends on faith. But he frames that as as knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. So Paul knows we need righteousness. But what Paul knows even more than that is what we need is we need to be found by Christ. Right? Paul doesn't describe just knowing Jesus, but he describes knowing Jesus as being found in Jesus. I'm found in Christ. And I want to... I want to unpack that in a couple of ways. What that, what, when Paul says, I am found in Christ, it means a couple of things. The first is it means that, that Jesus wants to find you. Jesus is looking for you. And one of the things that, that's difficult about being, being a pastor, or being a Christian, is, is what conversion is. And there's a lot of people that want to make conversion into a, a three- or four-step process. And I just, I really, I'm really resistant to that because I know a lot of people who work that process and are not Christians. I also know a lot of people who never worked that process and are Christians. And ultimately, becoming a Christian is not signing a theological statement. The demons would, would sign that statement and would pass the test. It's not about believing certain things, and it's not about doing certain things. That's what most religions are built on. Believe these things, do these things, then you're a part of our religion. What makes being a Christian challenging is while there's certainly truth to, to those elements, and we want to systematize it to make it simpler for us, ultimately becoming a Christian is Jesus finds you. And it, I don't even know, I don't know how that, that happens. different for every person. And all we do is a church is to exist in a way that helps people be found by Jesus. And Paul says, I was found in him. I read a, an article this week. It was actually a story of a conversion by a man named Paul Kingsnorth. It was in the, the magazine First Things. It's called The Cross. The t- title of the article was called The Cross and the Machine. I highly commend it to you. But he, he just walked through how he became a Christian. He grew up in Great Britain, as a very skeptical um, Brit, very, very hostile to the church. It was sort of the post-Christian world. People were leaving church and just sort of uh, looked at, at Christianity in very um, condescending ways. So he was an atheist for a long time. But ultimately, when he looked around at the world, it's beauty, it's goodness. It's like the, I, atheism does not make sense of what I'm saying. So then he, he moved into a, a season of, of being a Zen Buddhist because those meditative practices felt like it got him into connection with the universe and was powerful for him, and, and, and he did that for a while, and it felt good. But ultimately, there's no real ethic of love within Zen Buddhism. It's all detachment from the world. He's like, that doesn't make sense to me. I, I sense love in the universe. What is that all about? So that led him to actually go and be a Wiccan, to be, a, be involved in witchcraft. And it was actually when, this, when that happened— he began to have dramatic experiences related to Jesus. And he said, well, there was one night he had a dream that was so vivid, vivid where Jesus visited him and spoke to him that he woke up, uh, unable to go back to sleep, drew a picture of, of Jesus and wrote down everything Jesus said to him in the dream, which was basically, follow me. That's essentially what Jesus said. And those events continued. One day his non-Christian wife looked at him and was like, you're going to become a Christian. Just out of the blue which just kind of rocked his world that she would say that to him. He got a, a message from some random guy in Africa telling him, hey, I, God told me to message you because I'm going to convert you to Christianity. It's like, what, what is this? And finally, what did it for him, he was, he was still involved in uh, the occult, and he was about to go and do a Wiccan ritual, and he got so sick, so violently sick, he could not move. And that was, that was his last moment. He was like, okay, fine. Jesus it is. And he writes this about his conversion. After that, after that moment of getting incredibly sick, there was no escape. Like C.S. Lewis, I could not ignore the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. Knowing Paul's conversion story, which I'll mention in a second, it's, it's, very, it's very similar. To become a Christian in the way of Jesus is... For Jesus to find you. For him to pursue you. And if you're, if you're uh, thinking this morning, okay, that's nice. I'm not experiencing that. I'm not experiencing Jesus pursuing, looking for me. I have a hard time believing that's true. And if that's where you are, I want to say, say three things. So I'm going to start with the hard things and then go to the, I'll end with the encouraging thing. The hard thing I would say is, is the reason you might not be experiencing the fact that Jesus is looking for you is you may not want to know him. As Paul said himself, I I had to deal with the unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. And what I mean by that is when Paul talks about knowing Christ, he talks about knowing Christ in a very particular way. When I think about knowing Christ, what I want to do to know Christ is I want to... I'm going to go to my favorite coffee shop. I want to get my favorite drink, which is an Americano with heavy cream in it, a little bit of room. I want to get uh, some sort of, of treat that complements the coffee well. If you're at McLean's, that would be a cinnamon roll. I want my coffee. I want my cinnamon roll. I've got my Bible right there. I Instagram it. Hashtag know Jesus. That's what I, that's what I want my own knowing Christ to look like. That is not what Paul describes as is knowing Christ. Paul says this about knowing Christ, that I may know Christ, verse 10, and the power of his resurrection May share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of, from the dead. For Paul, knowing Christ means sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. It means a life of self denial, it means a life of giving up your own rights. To have the mind of Christ, Philippians 2, to say, I look out at this world and I do not think. What are my rights and what do I get from this world? But instead, I'm going I'm to push those down. I'm, I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to take up the mind of Christ, who, though he was God, did not consider his rights as being God a thing to be grasped for himself, but, but relinquished, relinquished it, becoming a slave, obedient to others, to human beings whom he created, willing to even die for us, and even to go through the, the death on a cross. Paul says the way you know Jesus is you, you walk that path. You die to yourself and you live for others. There's no other way to know Christ. And many of us don't want that, which might be why we're not experiencing Jesus in this moment. He's not coming to you, just offering you endless joy um, uh, moments. of well, he's, He actually is offering you endless joy, but it's of a path we don't think joy goes down And this is the, the, the way Paul Kingsnorth ends his article on conversion. He says this, I grew up believing what all modern people are taught, that freedom meant lack of constraint, right? Freedom means I can do what I want. That's what freedom is. Orthodoxy, Christianity, taught me that this freedom was no freedom at all, but enslavement to the passions, a neat description of the first 30 years of my life. True freedom, it turns out, is to give up your will and follow God's. To deny yourself, to let it come. I am terrible at this, but at least now I understand the path. And so much of the reason why we don't experience God, looking for us, is because we don't want to know Him as He is. Which is a God who denies His rights, who dies for His enemies, who gives up His own rights to serve others. If you're not interested in those things, you're not interested in Jesus, because that's who He is. That might be one reason why you're not experiencing Jesus looking for you. That's the hard one. That's like, you got you to repent of anything. Second is, is a little more encouraging, but still hard. Second is, is you, maybe you just need to wait. Jesus is looking for you, but he's not ready to rope you in quite yet. And I think of, of Paul's own conversion. How long was Paul able to persecute the church before Jesus finally showed up in a big light and was like, okay, enough of this. Why are you persecuting me? Saul. And Saul says, who am I talking to? And Jesus says, it's Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? And, Paul, and Jesus' response ultimately is, now I'm going to show you what suffering looks like. You're going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. But, but that's in Acts 9, when Paul gets converted. What's interesting to me in Acts 8, a man named Stephen gets murdered for preaching the gospel. And one of the people at that, at that murder is Paul who is willing to take the cloaks of people so that they can have their arms freed up to stone Stephen to death. And you might wonder, like, or Stephen's family might have wondered, why did God wait to convert Paul in Acts 9 instead of in Acts 5 so Stephen didn't have to die? I don't know. All I know is God doesn't work in timing that uh, rarely makes sense to, to you and I. What I can say is that people who have have waited for Jesus to find them, even when they're not experiencing, experiencing him, have some of the most beautiful stories and testimonies in life. The people who want to know Christ by sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, they have a beautiful witness when they wait. At this week, um, someone who was uh, just a stalwart member of our church in Chicago passed away in her early 50s Cancer. And her and her husband were one of those people. They had lost a child to SIDS. And when you talk to them, there was just a depth of faith, a depth of, of life. And I had, like I'd never really had a ton of contact with either of them. But, but those short Sunday morning conversations, you just had this sense. These people have a witness, a life. They've waited. So maybe you need to wait. Jesus, he's looking for you. He's going to find you. Not yet. So keep waiting. But thirdly, and this is where now we'll just go straight into being encouraging. Maybe you're you're not experiencing Jesus looking for you because you still think that he's expecting a resume from you that you don't have yet. And you think that until you have the case to present before, the argument, let me in, Jesus. Until then, that's only when he'll let you in. And that's that's, the second thing I want to say. When Jesus says being found in you, he means he's looking for you. And he also, Jesus, what, what, what Paul means by that is Jesus is the one who will get you in with God. Jesus will get you in. To be found in Christ does not just mean that Jesus found him. It primarily means that Paul now, when he stands before God, right? When he stands, when he's like, God, do I have the case to get in with you? Paul's saying, I'm, I'm not handing him my resume. I'm not, I'm not saying to God, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, tribe of Benjamin. I'm not presenting my resume before God. I'm, I'm found in Christ. I'm presenting Christ to God. And that's the resume that gets me in. It's sort of, it's sort of like this. Every uh, year in the past few years, my, my family has done photos in the fall. Basically what we do, we cut our children's hair. We, we comb them. Uh, we, we gel them in place so we cannot move. We put them in nice clothes we put them in a, a park somewhere with leaves and colors and we we take a really nice picture and if i showed you that picture you'd be like that looks like a nice family and i would say it is but that is that is a lie <laughs> that never that happens once a year and i don't even i don't even think it happened i think they airbrushed all that i don't like kids are yelling at each other there's chaos there's food everywhere i don't know how that photo happens but it happens somehow and s- likewise when you stand before God, if your faith is in Christ, God does not look at your resume. Right? He does not look at the efforts you put forward. What, he's not waiting for you to make a case before him for why he should let you in. He's looking at Christ. You are found in Christ, which gets you in. Which is why Paul calls it the righteousness from God, verse 9, the righteousness from God, that depends on faith. It's a gift. We say to God, I do not have the resume. I am found in Christ. I take his. We come to Jesus in faith. We get his resume. And the Lord lets us in. <laughs> and that's so important, because once you, once you begin to see that as true... That it's not based on your resume. One, it, it frees you from the guilt and anxiety to try to build your case before the Lord. You don't have to do it anymore. You're, actually, you're free to fail. It's okay. God doesn't need you to build his case and never fail, so that he'll let you. You don't have to do it anymore. And secondly, if you're walking around thinking you've made it and no one else has, you can, you're freed from that pride as well. That in other words, you're actually freed up to go and have an accurate view of yourself before the, the, the world, not too arrogant and not too low. I want to highlight this by telling a story. I I decided to tell it this morning, and so this feels a bit like a humble brag, and it probably is, and so I apologize. But it was a a major moment for me where it was just clear. It was the Lord's grace in in so many ways. But when I I applied for our seminary for Trinity, where I went to school, um, there, you know, a number of scholarships, which I thought I had zero chance of getting. And one was a full ride in particular. And I I, I did not spend much time filling it out because I thought there's no chance of of getting that, And the, one of the primary reasons I, I didn't think I had a chance of getting it is I, I was just a small church pastor, rural church pastor. Um, our church wasn't very big. It wasn't that important. We'd gone through a lot of conflict in the last few months. And it was just like my thought, my, my view of my own resume was no way what I've got should get me in. So I feel like I didn't take my time on it. They actually invite me to the next step to go and interview, which was like I was just totally stunned. And I get there and we go through the interview. It's a couple hours long and we finish it. And we're getting to the end that at the end of the interview, one of the guys leading it just said, hey, listen, you're we read your application. It was not good. In fact, the only reason we interviewed you is some other guy who met you when you came up here to to visit the school said you need to interview him. It's the only reason we interviewed you. Your application was awful. However, what we want you to do is take this interview that you just gave us. That's all I did, was just share my, like, my heart, my ministry, what's, what, what had happened, my failures, what, what, what I'd walked through the last couple years. We want you to take everything you said here, and we want you to put that in your application. Because other people are going to have to read your application to approve, your, to approve us giving you this scholarship. And we want them to read something else, essentially. And basically the guy said, just imagine you're going to put a couple hours into of of this, and you're going to get tens of thousands of dollars for a couple hours of work what he said. And there's a couple, there, a couple things about that moment. One is, because I had such a, a low view of myself, I shut a door that actually the Lord wanted to open. And he did in his own grace, and that, that's, that's gracious. But that's a sign. When, we, when we're trying to build a resume for ourselves, sometimes we'll shut the door to, to things on ourselves. Especially we'll shut the door to God on ourselves, which is, God, I, I don't have the case. I don't have the argument. There's no way you'll let me. Paul is saying is, I had the case, I actually had the argument to get in, and it was all crap, compared to knowing Jesus, who went into a grave for me, went onto a cross for me, and now the word spoken over us as Christians is words of blessing, because we are found in Christ. So in a few minutes, we're going we're gonna to sing a song um, called The Blessing, from Numbers 6, and I've heard enough feedback in the Christian world to know there's sort of this vibe of like, that just sounds like a little prosperity gospel. Like God just wants to bless us and his face shine on us. And, and listen, remember when we started this series, I said the definition of joy is someone else who's glad to be with you. And that's clearly what's happening in number six, is God is saying, as my people, I'm glad to be with you. My face is lighting up to be in a relationship with you. But it raises a question, how can a, a holy God, as we sung a minute ago, actually look at us with, face, with, with his face shining upon us because we all know what we did this week or last week or the last couple of months or what we've done in our past that we think i don't have the resume or if you think i do have the resume you're even worse you're 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 farther lost than the people who don't know that they don't have the resume so how can we sing the lord make your face shine on us and not sound like little children not in touch with our reality of our deep brokenness and the reason we're not little children not in touch with our deep brokenness is because we're not we're not putting our resume when we sing that song We're not saying, because we have the resume, God bless us. What we're saying is, we are found in Christ. I am found in him, therefore, Lord, make your face shine on me. Lift up your countenance towards me. Give me your peace and grace. Because that's what you gave Christ. Your son, and I am his. Let us pray. Father, the gospel message is something that, that we... We do not have the, the strength of mind to comprehend and so we, we, we open this space for the Spirit of God to come and do the work of Jesus which is to find all of us where we are this morning maybe we need to be found in a place of anxiety the, the resume is just not a good one right now and may we we hand that up to, to hand that over to Jesus and be found in him or for others of us that you, there's been a lot of looking down on others. There needs to be some, some cutting down to size to, to remind us that even Paul, who, who lived it, was blown away when he met Christ and was found in him and put it all aside for the beauty of knowing Christ. And for people here who have never met Jesus, never been found by him, Spirit, open their hearts to see what a life of receiving righteousness from God could look like, laying down a life of resume building life of being found in Christ. Spirit, you have to do that work. So we sing, we take communion in a second, all to invite you, God, to do the work you need